Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of SF Crossing the Gulf. My name is Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And today we will be talking about Erna Broadbur's The Rainmaker's Mistake. Karen, why don't you take it away? Well, um, Erna Broadbur is um, one of our one of our very well-known and very well-respected writers of the Caribbean. I had the pleasure of meeting her at the Bocas Lit Fest. And um, her book, The Rainmaker's Mistake, published 2007, is um, it's an interesting book. We were discussing what kind of subgenre we should call it. Um, I think it it deals more with myth than fantasy, very much steeped in myth. But we agree that it's sort of a extreme slipstream. It is something where you you go in expecting madness, and madness will occur. But we're not calling it magical realism because the characters are aware that this is not the way the world is supposed to be. It's not, it's not one of these situations where it's built into the running of, of that particular universe and they're taking it as granted. Now and before, I, sorry, go ahead. Well, I wanted to say that prior to reading this, uh, you'd warned me that it was very challenging. Mm-hmm. And I agree, but it's, to me, it's challenging in the same way that Kelly Link's story is challenging. Yes, exactly. Um, I didn't necessarily understand everything that was going on as it was going on, but I was comfortable with that level of dissonance because I've spent time reading people like Kelly Link and Jeffrey Ford and Andy Duncan and Theodore Goss. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, it's a book that's very worthwhile in the sense that you do get to read it more than once. You read it twice, you read it three times, you keep discovering more and more layers. So it's, it's, very, it's very fascinating in that way. Now, I want to direct you, first of all, to an interview, which includes uh, a reading from The Rainmaker's Mistake that was done with the podcast called The Spaces Between the Words. They're affiliated with the Caribbean Review of Books, University of the West Indies and Augustine Campus, and also the Bogus Lit Fest. It's well worth listening to, and I'm not going to tell you anything about it in detail because, of course, you're going to go and listen to it. Very short, just about 15 minutes. But there's one story that Erna Broadbur tells in that that I'm going to open with because it will offer a framework for how we're going to approach this. She describes going to a, an art gallery when she was much younger. Um, I think she said she was 17 or so, at an age where you think you know everything, she called it. And she sees a cubist painting called Early Dawn. So she's in front of this painting and she's raving. She's like, but I, but I can see early dawn. This, this man is a genius. So while she's exclaiming over the, the genius of the artist, a man comes up and he challenges her to point out where in the painting she sees this early dawn. So she points it out and he disagrees with her. She calls him a philistine. And, she's, and then he said, well, what if the painter completed this work at early dawn and that's the reason for the title? And she scoffed at him. And then he says, well, what if I told you I'm the painter? But this did not dismay her at all because she said what she gets out of it as the viewer of the art is not always going to be the same as what the artist puts into it, but they have validity in their own way. And so, Erna Broadburn, we are about to look for early dawn in your, in your painting. Karen Burnham may find dawn. Karen Lord may find mid-afternoon. There's a lot <laughs> in this story. And we're not going to claim that this is the only reading of this particular book. It is a book that is meant to have multiple readings. 
the author is happy with multiple readings, the author encourages multiple readings, which is good because I'm panicking ever so slightly. <laughs> I'm quite convinced that there are going to be things in here that I have well overlooked because of not knowing enough of the history and background. I know a fair amount, of course, from my own um, academic background and research, but Erna Broadbury is a sociologist. She is um, somebody who is very much steeped in, in this history and this, and this um, culture. That's not the right word. She's done a lot of community research. So she's not only read the history from the books, she has heard the oral history from the people. She really knows what she's doing and she puts it into a story. So you can always guarantee that there's a lot more going on there than you ever imagined. Well, so, and I believe we, we talked briefly over email, and I think I, I threw out a line that said something along the lines of, great art and great literature always supports multiple readings. That's true, yes, yes. That was a, and and that was, I almost feel like the greater the art, the more readings there are. Because I'm thinking there, there are a lot of perfectly enjoyable stories out there, any number of Pulp Fiction stories or adventure stories, uh, a lot of media tie-in novels, and not to insult all media tie-in novels, some are, have more than <laughs> more there than others. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you read them once and you've read them, and there's really only one read, way to read them, and okay, then you can move on. But, you know, something mm-hmm. as multi-layered as, as this or Kelly Link's story or, you know, Ted Chang's story, as we've, as we've discussed... Um, mm. earlier on this podcast, I think definitely supports, you know, many, many readings. Yes, yes. And, and many readings that hang together well. We're not talking about a haphazard, oh, I think I see, you know, a, a patch of blue in this corner. It's, it's, <laughs> they've, all, they've all got substance and structure and they hang together well. So I have the, the, the pleasure and the challenge of giving you a summary and um, I'm not inserting my opinion into the summary yet. An, an unenviable task. <laughs> but here it goes. First of all, the, the narrative is carried by several characters, and all of these are considered to be unreliable narrators because um, they've had their memories tampered with, or at least in the case of the first narrator, um, she's not yet six. So she's talking about a situation that she doesn't fully understand what's going on. They're speaking in myth half the time, they contradict themselves regularly. And they're pretty much on a journey of discovery, trying to find out where they came from and to find out where they're going to be going to. So the, the first speaker describes her life. There is, she lives on a, a plantation. There is Mr. Charlie, who's called our father, our maker, our preserver. There's Woodville, who is appointed by Mr. Charlie, and he's like a king or a leader over the rest of them, and he carries a whip in his back pocket. And Mr. Charlie and Woodville appear to be friends or at least close colleagues from from way back they definitely seem to rely on each other a lot she's told that she was once a baby and then when she's told where babies come from she's told they are they're like yams they grow in the ground like yams they come from mr charlie's semen that he spills into the soil and they're unearthed um when they're babies and presented and named at the founder's day ceremony the Founders Day ceremony is where they, they have their kind of feast and celebrate and so on. They also drink a ritual glass of wine, which they call communion. The babies grow to be six, and then they join the picnic gang, where their job is to weed the fields. So you have, really, this is, um, this is a plantation house. This is, the word slave is not used, but this is a plantation house. These are, these are um, workers, let's call them workers, workers, laborers. And 
they have this overseer who is Woodville and this master who is Mr. Charlie. But something strange happens. Woodville is upset about something, and it seems to have to do with one of the women, Isis, who has a child, and the child is yellow, not dark brown, and she has straightish hair. So there's this tension, and then one day, Mr. Charlie summons the small children and says, it's 1834, you're under six, you're free. And then he summons the older workers and says, it's 1838, you're free. He goes inside the house, he closes the door. They're still standing in the yard wondering what happened, what does this free mean? And then Woodville shouts at Mr. Charlie, didn't I tell you you'd do that? He starts laughing. The laugh turns into a tornado. The tornado demolishes the great house, leaving only the foundation. Now that's just the first few pages. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and that, that sets the stage the rest of the book is really about them deconstructing their old myths and trying to find the truth. So they move to another island, and they call that the present. But then they travel back to the past, which is where the great house was, to bring in extra soil so they'll have enough land to survive. So they kind of do a landfill. They discover another place close by, which they, they make a seaway to, and, call, and the place is called the future. They call it the future. And they traveled there to trade and so on. They discover things like, like school and brothels. <laughs> and that's how you begin to discover that these people are not just, you know, laborers on a plantation who have had their way of life disrupted in an odd fashion. They are actually um, immortal. The children grow to be six, but they stay six. The teenagers have been teenagers for years. The adults do not grow old. They're each in their little groups, and they stay as they are. Um, there's no sex. Everyone is asexual. But because they're now being exposed to this other place called the future, where people are normal, they, you know, they age and they grow old, they die and so forth, and there's sex, um, they themselves begin to realize that things are changing in their world. They are slowly growing up. These children are growing up, the teenagers are starting to experience sexual urges, the adults are, are getting gray hair and their joints are beginning to ache. They, they start to question this initial myth of, of the yams and they're like, well, this, this doesn't work. What, what's really going on? Woodville is, is found washed up on the beach. Apparently he's suffering from a stroke and they have to care for him. But he says, he says very little and what he says doesn't make sense most of the time because he, he's not really capable of speaking. And they're puzzling over their origins. They're trying to get their, their new community to work. Um, there are, um, they find that Isis and Sally Water, they move to another place. And then when they go in, to and fro and visit them, you very soon realize that Isis dies and Sally Water grows old. By the way, Sally Water is the daughter with the, block, the, with the yellow hair that's <laughs> earlier. Sally Water is Isis' daughter, yes. Um, they, they grow old before the 16-year-olds even start to look like teenagers. So that gives you a sense of the passage of time. So this batch of initial six-year-olds, they travel about by boat, by plane. They seek their answers in the past, which is where the Great House was, the location, mind you, not the, just the time, but the location, and the future, which is the place where people grow old normally and so forth. And it takes them almost two centuries to begin to find answers. 
And the answers are very puzzling as well. And they are also couched in more mythic language. So the answers are that uh, all, of, all of what happened, they're being stuck at one age, asexual, sterile, immortal, forgetting their origins. They were given surgery, which um, they, they discovered because they've all got little um, nicks either at the base of their throat or at the base of, of their, of their um, heads. And they were also given drugs, which they now recognize is what the wine of communion was about. The wine of communion was to maintain what was done to them and also to help take away their memories of what happened before. So Mr. Charlie and Woodville were in some kind of agreement together. Woodville actually had a residence separate from the plantation where he had three wives, and they were the ones who produced the babies for the plantation who were claimed to be yams when they actually appeared on the plantation. But at some point, Mr. Charlie must have taken a liking to Isis. Isis was actually Woodville's sister. So he had her surgery reversed, the surgery that would have made her sterile and asexual, had sex with her, which then produced Sally Water. Woodville got angry at this, and that was what led to the emancipation and the destruction of the Great House and the end of this strange experiment that they had in this location that they call the past. Woodville's brother um, called London, another one of the workers, he begins to remember even more details. He remembers that Woodville was Tayeb, and he was Abdul. They lived elsewhere. They left home against their mother's wishes to see the new world. And the people of the new world treated them well initially, but then eventually started treating them with condescension, and then even began to laugh at them and humiliate them. And Tayeb made rain to show off that he had this power and knowledge that was beyond anything that they had because they were they were in they described this new world as the one we know now of electricity and asphalt roads and so on. So he wanted to show off that there was stuff that he knew from that they, they had no clue about. But then he made too much rain and it washed away their homeland and it killed their mother. So in his grief he retreated to the past along with some of his siblings and some other adults. And um, they created this place where um, people didn't have to worry about decisions, about being provided for or about what job to do. So that is a summary. Or that is, shall we say, one possible summary. A summary. A summary, yes. (laughs) What do you make of it, Karen? Well, the first thing that I wanted to say was that when I started to read those introductory pages... Um, before Mr. Charlie says you're free, it it just hit all the alarm bells for me as a science fiction reader that said, "Oh, this is a brainwash cult. <laughs> this is a brainwash cult. You know, it's 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 got this creepy founder and it's got these creepy origin myths, and people obviously don't know what the what reality is." And then as the story progressed and there was the 1834-1838 reference, I was like, oh, no, wait, I'm misreading it. It's a, it's a metaphor for, um, you know, being freed from, from slavery. And then at the very end of the book where all, everything becomes revealed about the experiments that were done, I was like, I was right. It was a creepy brainwash cult. <laughs> so I was, I was just very proud of that, that, well, that my instincts were true, even with this, you know, even with this literature. Exactly. Well, you see, this is the interesting thing, because you came into it 
um, already with a science fictional hat on. I came into it with a Caribbean literature hat on. <laughs> but I, I wasn't even expecting science fiction. I got a nice shock. Yeah, that must have been that must have been quite a, a an interesting revelation for people who aren't used to reading that way. I think that's what confused quite a few reviewers. But but then when I was thinking about it, when I was reflecting on the story, then I asked myself, well, why does this story have science fiction in it? It, mm-hmm. it you know, you could argue that it doesn't need it or that it could have been told a different way. So so then I started thinking and the more I thought about it, the more it struck me that that the story and this sounds trite, and it, I don't mean it to be, but the story is about story. It's yeah. about people finding their own narrative. And one of the things that I found, the thread that I found strongest in the story is, Mr. Charlie says it's 1834 and, and the little children are free. And he goes away and comes back and he says, it's 1838, all of you are free. Mm-hmm. And they all sort of stand there and go, well, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, yeah, they have no context to to put it in, and knowing only the myths that they've been sold as basically experimental subjects, they they have no context to in which to move forward. Now, the the narrator, um, you know, the young child does move forward, and she finds the island, and 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 they move to the island, and they we start making life for each other or for themselves. Mm-hmm. There's one chapter narrated by a character, um, Luke. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he he tries to come up with a, a myth that mm-hmm. could give them some context. And it's it's a beautiful piece of writing about shadows and lace mm-hmm. and lace yeah. people. But it has no impact at all. It doesn't get taken up by the community. Mm-hmm. The thing that um, that Queenie, who's the original narrator, the child who grows up, she goes away. She goes to school. She actually gets um, advanced degrees in medicine and I believe archaeology? Yes. Mm-hmm. She's the one, by understanding the science and the history, that is able to find a story that explains themselves and that they can then use to move forward. It's science and, mm-hmm. and science fiction that gives them that, that path. Yes, yes. And I found that really interesting because it wasn't what the white guy said you know, mm-hmm. at the beginning. That, that had almost no, no impact aside from him going away. Uh, that's trite, but... Um, <laughs> so it wasn't what Luke said. Now Luke is is presented as the numbers guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's the kind of guy when they do trade, he keeps the accounts. You know, he's that kind of uh, that's his the skill that he brings to the community. So, and mm-hmm. when he tries to make a myth, like I say, it's a beautiful piece of writing, but it it doesn't really help. Yeah. <laughs> But it's Queenie going out and, and finding these things that, that gives them the context to move forward. Yes, yes. So that was, that was one of the things that struck me the most as is, is to answering the question, why, why is there science fiction in this story? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and for me, it's, it's, I have to admit, that did not come to my mind. Although you're quite right that in... Well, the initial myth, of course, was... Well, let, let, me de- let me define it. 
there's the the definition of myth as a lie, and then there's a sort of sociological definition of myth as a reframing of a truth. Okay, right. So what they the myth the origin myth that they had initially was in fact a lie, because it although it was reasonably coherent. There, it was. It was not going to last. There were. There was plenty of things that were going to go wrong. It was going to to fall to pieces. But then you look at how um, Abdul describes what happened when they begin to find the truth. And yes, they got to that point via Queenie acquiring scientific knowledge, searching for facts, searching for evidence. But then by the time Abdul remembers enough to begin to say what happened, he, he starts to, to rephrase it like a myth again. But this Good time point. it's a true myth. Right. Absolutely. No, it's, it's both. You need both. You need the evidence-based stuff that Queenie brings to the, to the table, but then you also need the history to ground the myth that, um, that Abdul brings to the table. Exactly. Exactly. There's a little bit of background to this as well. What Erna Broadbert may have encountered as a sociologist, as a researcher going into the community, um, is a situation of people not having a lot of information from around the days of slavery and trying to put together some kind of coherent story for how they got to where they are. So what she's describing in the book along with some other things is an actual historical fact of people trying to to find patterns of meaning to explain where they are to explain who they are oh speaking of the history do you want to mention the the 1834 and 1838 yes Yes. the reason why mr charlie mentions these two dates separately the reason why the six-year-olds the under sixes are freed first is this is how the emancipation in the British Empire um, went. They first had a system whereby all those who were under six were emancipated in 1834. And then they had a four-year apprenticeship period, which was supposed to offer some sort of transition for those who'd been enslaved um, from at an older age. And then at the end of that, um, in 1838, they were all freed. So there, there was that transition, and, and it's interesting because Mr. Charlie, as I said, comes out, and he says it in, in the same minute, basically. He says it's 1834, it's 1838. That's the point at which people who have been reading it as historical fiction begin to go, wait a minute, something's <laughs> happening here. Four years did not just pass. But it's, it's, a, very, it's a very symbolic moment, yes. Now, um, I was going to say as well that you do have people trying to research their past, trying to get founding stories and so on. And for myself, for example, whenever I used to chat my mother and, you know, talk about, tell us about the old days kind of thing. She used to say that when they would speak to their parents, their parents wouldn't tell them very much. They wouldn't even tell them their names. They would say, you know, to you and mother, to you and papa, you don't need to know anything more than that. Really? Um, yes. And in some cases, it was a sort of a maybe slightly draconian, know your place child kind of comment. But in other cases, it was a situation of they had 
things they did not want to tell a child. So you have a kind of a collective amnesia. And that collective amnesia, she's just framed very nicely in this story, them drinking that wine of communion, and mm-hmm. they all forget their origins. They, there's a, another quite famous uh, West Indian novel called In the Castle of My Skin, and it's a semi-autobiographical account by George Lamming. He describes um, being in school with all these other small boys, and they are learning the usual kings of England, what have you, the usual sort of British British Empire time kind of thing. And one of the boys says that he met a woman who said she was a slave. And the teacher is like, no, 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 that wasn't possible. We were never slaves. It, it, it happened, but it didn't happen here. It didn't happen to us. And they go into this sort of spiral of, of very confused denial. And what would have happened is that, and I, I actually kind of worked out the dates it would entirely have been possible for somebody to have been born a slave and still been alive, say, age 80 plus, 90 or so, in 1929, 1930, thereabouts, when the story was set. But historically, that kind of thing was not being taught in schools. So you had communities of people, a generation of people growing up, sort of hearing vaguely about slavery, but not really connecting it to their experience. Hmm. I know it sounds it sounds bizarre. It no, does no, I can I can understand it entirely. Actually, and this will the experience from my own family. I know my father. My my family's from a very small town in Maine originally. My father took one of his history classes, maybe middle school level. Mm-hmm. from from one of his aunts or, you know, again, small town, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he knew, because my grandparents were into, my grandmother was into genealogy, he knew that some of our ancestors had been impounded sailors who jumped ship. Okay. Um, in fact, some of them had been Irish impounded sailors who jumped ship from the British Navy. Mm-hmm. She wanted to to, you know, more or less say oh no we were all from not not the mayflower obviously but <laughs> there is actually a branch of our family that that came to maine in a shipwreck in um 16 1634 mm-hmm, on the mm-hmm. on a ship called the archangel gabriel that's at least a little better story than the impounded <laughs> they're, yeah they're both true you know yeah. because families obviously branch out the farther you go back but uh, she preferred the archangel gabriel shipwreck story to the impounded yes. sailor story and he just tortured her with it you know all, <laughs> all semester okay well and, that's that's a perfect example if if you've had traumatic experiences of, in your past you do not necessarily want to pass them on to your children and similarly if you are in a structure in a in a, in a if you're trying to rule a country and you are I don't I don't want to quite say trying to keep order but yes they were trying to keep order because the time I'm talking about quite soon after that in the 30s there were riots there were riots throughout the region and one of the reasons there were riots was because they had been sort of a de facto continuance of the plantation system where the, the wages were very low opportunities to work different places were very limited and there was a some a very strong social control going on 
and education was part of it, being very careful to educate certain people within their <laughs> sort of the was it the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate. Mm. Very much very much educating people within what they were expected to do, what roles they were expected to fulfill. Mm-hmm. So so with that kind of social engineering going on, you you begin to understand why Erna Broadbury has has created this this experiment of the past, as it were, because and and why people grow up so slowly as well because it I, when i read that for me it was almost as if she was saying yes you know they were free in 1838 but by the time you got to 1920 or so so little had changed that it was as if they'd hardly grown up right right and how can you when you're kept ignorant of your past and where you came from and where you're going and Mm-hmm. Exactly. When you don't have schooling and you don't have these things. Or the schooling is very carefully arranged so that it tells you some things and not others. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I, I wanted to mention, and this actually, I noticed this about both this and the the middle halter. It just struck me that there was very little, the people narrating it were frankly pretty practical about <laughs> the whole thing. Like it yeah. was, it was, there was a matter of factness about mm-hmm. the narration, even when things are just getting really weird. Now, I know uh, Milton in, in My Bones and My Flute eventually just kind of loses it and freaks out. <laughs> yes, but, but Rayburn is the one who always... But Rayburn uh... stays firm. Yes. Um, My... there's, there's just a real lack of, of what I'd call melodrama that I really appreciated. I think that where this is accurate is that you, if you've already been through the worst, in a sense... Mm-hmm. You kind of have to be pragmatic or else you will get killed off really fast. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. So so you're quite right about that that pragmatism and to be to be completely trivial here. It reminds me of when I went to the cinema to see Signs, you know that M Night Shyamalan. Oh yes. And and the the thing about going to the cinema in Barbados, especially when you pick a particular day when the crowd is just the right size, is sometimes the crowd is more entertaining than the movie. <laughs> and with that movie, I imagine that'd be true. <laughs> <laughs> so you get all kinds of commentary flying. And the main thing, of course, is everybody's always amazed at how completely non-pragmatic, how, pra- how impractical people are in these kind of thriller slash horror <laughs> movies. So there's, there's all kinds of comments flying. And the bit I love the best was when the aliens are coming through the ceiling, for goodness sakes. And, and Joaquin Phoenix, I can't remember what his character's name was, but Mel, Mel Gibson's brother in, in, the, in the show. He's standing at the stairway, giving a running commentary of how far he thinks the aliens have managed to come through the roof. And Mel Gibson has taken the opportunity to seize his son by the shoulders and reminisce with him about the day he was born. <laughs> right, right. And you sh- and the cinema was rolling up with laughter. <laughs> I'm sure it was supposed to have been a very touching and, and memorable and poignant moment. But the cinema was like, man, try and save yourself. What are you talking about? When he was born, you're going to die in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe this could wait. Yes, exactly. Oh, my word. So, sorry. Yes, I just had to share that one. Oh, yep. Hmm. <laughs> Now, another note I have here is that uh, there's a lot of Eden imagery that that jumped out at me. Um, Ooh, or, well, just especially where they were on the island in the present. 
mm-hmm. during the time when they're not really maturing, when everyone's still fairly static. Yes. Mm-hmm. That felt a lot like the pre-Fall Eden. Except for this story, it's a good thing that they moved out of that and and found the world of sex and sexuality and maturity and prosperity. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, of course, the, the biblical story, you know, it's a bad thing that you leave that state. Um, well, the word jury's out on that as well, by the way. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, my, I actually did read Paradise Lost. Yes. And mm-hmm. the one thing that really jumped out, really stuck in my mind about reading Paradise Lost is that post-Apple sex is so obviously better than pre-Apple <laughs> sex. <laughs> I, I clearly have to read this, yes. <laughs> I, was I don't, little, I'm not... It, it is worth reading. It, again, it was challenging it's just because of the language and the poetry, and I'm not usually an epic poetry reader, but, you know, I felt like, it. you know, I was on a big Western canon kick at the time, so I read it. And that, like I say, that was my big takeaway. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really impressed that you use that term, um, you know, Eden, because I did say when I, when I summarized it that Mr. Charlie and Tayeb created a frozen Eden. Because okay. they had been, Tayeb and his siblings had been through so much trauma, you know, with their the death of their mother and, um, you know, having sort of left home against her wishes. And also, the, to a certain extent, they made it sound as if their home was destroyed as well in the rain. Sound, that was the impression I got. Yes. So they, they're retreating. They're, re, they're, they're hurt. They're traumatized. They're retreating. And they retreat to a place where they don't have to think. They don't have to think about about what to do. They don't have to make any decisions. They don't have to. They can just have somebody tell them what to do. And there's a there's a an enforced innocence about that. So it is a sort of a, a warped, a warped Eden, where you set up a god, <clears throat> um, an all father, a maker, a preserver, and that father tells you what to do, and you just do it. And if you don't feel like doing it, sometimes there's an overseer with a whip in his back pocket and you stay on the straight and narrow eventually. And that's that. There's no free. There's nothing to worry about because there's no free. Mm. And Abdul, even after he begins to, he gets out of there and he's, he's growing older and then he starts to remember, even he is still saying things like, you know, I don't want to have to make decisions. I... I'm, I'm giving you this information. Do with it what you will. I'm not a leader. Don't ask me. <laughs> and I yeah, think he's very strict about the fact that he's not a leader. Mm-hmm. And he's very willing to cede that kind of authority to, to people like Queenie. Yes, yes. And it's, it's fascinating because you get this sense of <laughs> slavery as both enforced and accepted, which I'm very sure that is a sort of thing a sociologist wants to point out. That there's some kinds of oppression that are enforced, but then there are also some aspects of oppression that are accepted and gladly accepted because you don't want to make decisions. You don't want to be the leader. You don't want to be the one who steps out and tries to find the truth and moves forward. Well, that gets into some problematic territory, doesn't it? How so? Tell me. Well, it just my knee jerk on, on that is to say, well, but the people who find themselves in that situation are usually acculturated to that situation. You can say that in the context of the story, it slightly falls down because Abdul is not one of the ones born in the plantation. Right. And to my mind, that that is actually kind of problematic that Abdul and, and 
Oh, Tareem? Tayeb. Tayeb. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's not right. Maybe Tayeb. Sorry. Go on. The, the fact that they entered into this the mm-hmm. way they did and were... They entered into it as a result of trauma, but not a result of conditioning or enculturation. Right, and not as the result of, say, a forcible ens- a forcible enslavement. They weren't abducted and put on a ship and sold. They, you can still say they weren't in their right minds. They weren't in their right minds, true. It wasn't, it wasn't, and, and that, let's, let's, let's break it down to an individual level. That happens on an individual level as well as a cultural level. If you have um, someone who's really just been through a lot, they don't want to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And they can be taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. And people whose situations get worse because they get to a point where they are, they become defenseless. They can't fight back. They're, they're tired of fighting and they, they pause for a moment and somebody's like, aha, now I can, I can take this vulnerable person and do what I will. Now, what, what I think kind of made me more itchy was not Abdul, who was clearly fully traumatized, but Tayeb, who was somewhat of power. He, he was a leader. Mm-hmm. He had rainmaking power. And he had a lot of pride because even what he did was a reaction from being laughed at. Right. And he did not simply just sort of sit down and, and lick his wounds and gather his family around him and, and say, let's rebuild. He went and entered into an agreement with Mr. Charlie to, to create this, this bubble, which ultimately is a bubble that goes nowhere. I know what, what it reminded me of, and I thought it was kind of funny, especially in view of the talk of past, present, and future locations, is you get you do get a sci-fi trope of people wanting to go back to the past for a simpler life. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's a trope that I always laugh at because I'm like, yeah, right. Which part of my past do you plan to have me go to? <laughs> because did, did I ever, did, were you there during the one ICFA panel when Brett Cox turned to Ted Chang and said, if you'd been writing in the 1890s, do you think you would have written sci- pure science fiction? And Ted Chang said, you mean if I hadn't died working on the railroads? <laughs> Well, it has to be said, doesn't it? It's like, oh, <laughs> that, wait, yeah. But that's the reality of things. And and there is, well, the only the only science fiction novel that pops into my head that acknowledges that to a certain extent is um, Johnny, and the, Johnny and the Bomb by Terry Pratchett, one of his young adult books. Oh, I've never read that one. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. So there's, there's a gang of kids who are friends, you know, Johnny among them. And there's this one black kid, called Yoles, and there's also a girl whose name I forget, and they go back to, you know, war years, World War II, and at first it's all like, oh yes, this time was so lovely, things were simpler, it was wholesome, it was etc, etc, and then of course within two minutes somebody says something racist to Yoles, and somebody says something sexist to the girl, and they're all like, yeah, right, we want to go by the future right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so, you know, it's, and it's, it's absolutely hilarious, but it's the sort of thing that doesn't come across in the in the more idyllic versions, shall we say? Well, and okay, so so here's where here's where I guess the the re- the history that they discover for the the cult, let's call it, you know, Mr. Charlie's cult in the Rainmaker's Mistake, sort of. Okay, so from my perspective as having a a Western and liberal 
understanding of the history of slavery. Mm-hmm. I know that Africans were complicit in enslaving other Africans and selling them to the Americas. But uh, in in the book, there's this narrative where Woodville and London are complicit in enslaving themselves. The, um, the Africans enslaved Africans thing is a simplified version. I, I assume it is vastly oversimplified. <laughs> Um, which I'm not going to delve into too deeply. Okay. Uh, what I what I would say is that um, there are different. Well, I should I should not get into this at all because this is the sort of thing that that actually pings my academic switch. Okay. So I I don't want to say something off the cuff because then I always feel like I got a backed up references and so on. <laughs> I, I totally understand that impulse. Although any any enlightenment you can give me, I would be grateful for. Okay, but I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a scenario, and we'll just take it as a scenario, pending um, further you know reference backing up, etc. Fair enough. But if you were um, say one country or, or one group at war with another group, mm-hmm. and part of your tradition was that if you took prisoners of war, you would enslave them in your culture. Right, right. And in your culture, somebody could be enslaved in your culture, but eventually become a citizen, as did happen, for example, in Rome and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Rome and Greece all had ways for s- slaves to, to move out of slavery. Precisely. So if you were in that kind of culture and then somebody said, well, you know, I, I have some need for labor. I'll buy your slaves from you. You'd probably go, yeah, sure. Because you're thinking it's your kind of slavery. Mm. Okay, um, I, I understand. Yeah. So... So you, so whenever people say, yeah, you know, and people have been enslaving people, what I'm like, yeah, there's slavery and there's slavery. And the kind of slavery that basically makes people inhuman for generations afterwards is not the kind you want to be um, sort of holding up as an example of things people do around the world, because it's not as simple as that. Absolutely. Okay, no, I understand that distinction. But, but again, there's a, by making Abdul and Tayeb complicit in their own enslavement and that of the rest of the group, Mm-hmm. That shifts the moral burden in a way that's kind of weird, and I I think it shifts the burden only slightly for two reasons. One, they've just come from a traumatic experience. Okay, fair enough. It's definitely a sense of they're not doing this because there's money to be had, or oh, this is an interesting scientific experiment. You know, the sort of the Doctor Frankenstein impulse. Mm-hmm. Really doing it because they've they've suffered a huge loss. And they're just looking for a place to rest. And the past, sort of the, the real past, is the past of a slavery that is not like the slavery that's depicted in this book. We're talking about slavery of rape and exploitation and and actual use of the whip on people, as opposed to, you know, the way it's described in the book, which is like, oh, yes, he's going to crack his whip in the air sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe this a, a slight cut. Um, so, so when you compare the reality of plantation life with the idyllic, if somewhat creepy and cultish plantation like described <laughs> at the beginning of the book, you do in fact begin to realize that um, it is it is a sort of a a very odd sanitized version that, believe it or not, was the kind of version that some people believed when when abolitionists were were campaigning in the UK in in England. They were part <laughs> of the population who viewed slavery, which they had not seen, who viewed the plantation system as a sort of a, a rustic English kind of thing where, you know, 
slaves had cottages and, and you know they lived quite comfortably and of course the master had to provide for them and and they were far better off than than our people here who have to sweat for their wages and don't get anything given to them so you they they actually had a vision of slavery that was was almost like what Ernest Robert is picturing in this book now oh by the way that that wasn't just in England um what for a while I re- was doing um editing reading for Project Gutenberg uh-huh. You know, where they, you scan in a text and then somebody has to go in and check whether or not the, you know, how many typos have showed up from the scan, right? And one of the things that someone had scanned in was a bunch of historical proceedings or his- proceedings from a historical society that was meeting in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. And it was a Southern historical society. And the story they were trying to tell about this plantation culture in the South Yes. <laughs> was shocking. I mean, it was stunningly shocking. I mean, I, I wanted to scrub my brain out with soap every time I read part of that manuscript. Okay, wait, so I'm, I'm making assumptions. Why, why did you want to scrub your brain out? Well, for one, they were so racist. You know, it was, well, well the, black, you know, the, the black people can't really take care of themselves, and the white plantation owners took care of them, and... I mean, it was it, it totally bought into the paternal the paternalism yes. view of slavery, social Darwinistic view. Uh, no, that didn't enter into it as much, at least by my hazy recollections. Um, it really was that it was the black people were better off under slavery because the the, the masters were so so wise and kind and and black people couldn't possibly take care of themselves what i meant by the social darwinism thing was um and this was actually ha this this is something that i could give you references for because <laughs> my amphil thesis but for example there were anakin priests um english anakin priests mm-hmm. who were very much of the view that their work um, in in the West Indies was important because clearly by by you know Darwinism Darwinism's um, tenants the 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 black race was was lower and perhaps in about you know two hundred um, centuries or so they would eventually rise to the level of the white race but it was it was therefore their burden to help to raise them up so, right. so you, okay. That's what I meant by social Darwinism, this idea that, well, you know, they, they'll eventually get there, but of course we have to help them and we'll do what we can. So oh, you- no, these people did not have any any illusions about the, the black person's future or the black race's future potential. Okay. No. It was, it was just, oh, no, we, we'll take care of them because they can't take care of themselves. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, okay. no, I mean, it was, oh, man, I was, I, later I read uh, the, the proceedings of a society of librarians and that was a lot, <laughs> lot more restful. <laughs> yeah, it can be stressful. When I did my MPhil, um, well, no, when I say stressful, when I did my MPhil, I, I remembered reading things and thinking to myself, I have to be very careful how I write this down because I have a feeling that my supervisors are not going to know about this and they're going to be shocked. And um, so said, so done. Basically, there was there was in fact one examiner who thought I was being very emotional about it, and I and I didn't say anything. I just sort of smiled and nodded. But what he didn't realize was that I made a point of only quoting people, in the sense that whenever there was something to be said that was particularly shocking, I would I would lift a passage from mm. the book or the reference and just put it there. And I and I made a point of not actually framing it in anything like that. So when so when he said that, I was like, well, maybe they were emotional. I wasn't, but I think you're <laughs> oxygen. <laughs> 
But I digress. That's a good strategy, though. (laughs) Um, But what I mean to say is that um, it can be very fascinating to to look at that, um, the, the mentality back there, and also to realize that sometimes the view of that plantation life was of this, you know, we're taking care of people. We're, we're, we're creating a place for them where they can uh, be, be useful and, and, you know, well-fed and whatever, and they'd be so much worse off if they weren't in a situation. And that's what the first part of the Rainmaker's Mistake looks like. Right. Because they're happy. They're all happy. They're all smiling. It's it's the most it's the most pleasant plantation you've ever encountered. Well, and and actually that brings up let's could we talk for a second about the contrast between Queenie, who's the young um the young she drives a lot of the action, and Matilda. Hang on, before we get to Queenie and Matilda, there were two things I was gonna mention. Oh, okay. Was tr- and the other thing is that Mr. Charlie is extremely ineffectual for Presser. Which is another reason why I'm not um, quite as as disturbed by the idea that it's Tayeb who's who's driving a lot of this. I say he's ineffectual because he he tends to have Tayeb run the place. Mm-hmm. Um, if he's having sex, we don't know where he's getting it from. Since the one time that he actually goes out of his way to to um, to actually have something with ISIS. Woodville, sorry, Abdul is so angry at him that he basically destroys the place. <laughs> yeah. So, so in a way, the oppressor is is not really in control. The alleged oppressor, the the Mister Charlie, the R father, whatever, he's completely a figurehead. Mm-hmm. And I actually like it that way because the story is not a story of oh look how horrible the oppressor is, because that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is you come from a trauma. How do you deal with it? You come from an individual and collective trauma, which perhaps initially wants makes you want to retreat and have decisions made for you and, and not have to think about how to go forward. But then eventually you have to come out of that bubble and how do you go forward? Right, right. Sorry, Queenie and Matilda, hit me with it. Well, I was just saying, so Matilda, Queenie's the one who's pushing Mm-hmm. Pushing for answers, pushing for knowledge. Uh, Matilda is a, very much a mother figure. I get the impression that her role on the plantation was was helping raise the children to to whatever their next job would be. You know, joining the picnic gang or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she was kind of portrayed as surrogate mother, even for Tayab and Abdul, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she a okay. lot of the mother imagery winds up attached to her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she's she's very much that person who really seemed to be happier back then. And this doesn't surprise me. Because she's the one who went through the trauma of losing the mother and losing the homeland. Right. She was one of the that original generation. And Queenie didn't. So Queenie's pushing for things and, and Matilda's like, you know what, I just have a sense that that can of worms is one that I sealed up for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I that that actually makes perfect sense to me. And by the way, I really liked, and, and this is just on a craft level. I really liked the different voices of the different narrators. You know, there were a couple chapters from Luke, lots from Queenie, a couple from Matilda, a couple from um, I believe it was Essex was the guy with the plane. That's right. Yes, yes. Uh, and you I think you're going to love you're going to love it even more when you get to ghosts because that's 
something that those two authors, Cordella Forbes and Erna Broadbur, have very much in common. When two different people are talking, you know it. Yeah, and let me tell you, getting back to Egan, that's probably one of his absolute weakest points. He never does multiple third-person narrators because he would not be able to handle it. Mm. I mean, all his narrators sound the same. Well, to be absolutely fair, it is a challenge. No, it's, it's, it, that's why I appreciate so much when it's done well. Yeah. And, um, and I, was, I was concerned about you. How did you handle the dialect? I really didn't have a problem with it. There were a couple words that were unfamiliar, but I I don't know. I just really didn't have tr- that much trouble with it. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> I, I would say right now to everyone who's listening. <laughs> well, and that's one of the things. When you said it was challenging, I expected that to be the big thing. And the oh. opening chapter took a little bit to get into the voice and the rhythm of it. But mm-hmm. after chapter, say, three, I, mm-hmm. I, I was just in the flow. I, I wasn't too much worried about you in terms of the dialect. I figured that you would probably get into the language eventually. The the switching of narrators perhaps was a bit more of a mental spin. No, no, I mean, we're, I'm so used to that from science fiction. Third person multiple narration is the, the norm for so much of what people read now or write nowadays. That's true, that's true. But, but I think that there are people who hesitate to delve into Caribbean literature because they are, are scared of the dialect. They're scared of the, well, I say scared of, that's probably a little too strong. They believe they're going to have to work at the dialect. And to my view, if you can read science fiction and fantasy, you already have a very good set of experience and practice. Yeah, especially, I mean, so often science fiction writers have to come up with neologisms. Mm-hmm. To describe whatever it is they're doing, you've got Klingon's developed language, you've got Tolkien with all the elvish words. Or you've even got a clockwork orange, for heaven's sake. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you move into the future just a little bit, and people have to come up with words for things we haven't invented yet. If you're used to that, you should yeah. be able to read literature in English from almost anywhere and exactly. figure it out. Exactly, exactly. So there you have it, folks. No excuse. And then, what was the other thing? Oh, another thing I thought was particularly well done in the craft was that in those scenes where you see the contrast between the the normal world where people age normally, starting with Sally Water and then looking also at the future, contrasted with the people on the island, Mm -hmm. there's, and I don't even quite, I can't put my finger and say, well, here's how she does it, or here's where she does it, but there's a sense of the years lying lightly on mm-hmm. the immortal beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or if not immortal, at least extremely, you know, unnaturally long-lived. Yes. That the years lie more lightly on them than on the characters who are experiencing the normal flow of time. Mm-hmm. And it's just a, it's a, it's a light touch, but it, it grounds a lot of the odder things. Yes. And I have to say that this this is one of the reasons why I'm a bit in awe of this book. Because there are little details like what you've just described. And you almost don't realize it until you've read it the third time. <laughs> because first, first of all, when you read it the first time, it takes you a while to even realize that they're immortal. It takes you a while to realize that when she says she's almost six, that she actually plans to be almost six for the rest of her right, life. Right, right. She thinks that's normal. <laughs> and and that 
to tell the truth, when I came to that point of realization, I was well freaked out and I was absolutely enthralled because that, well, th there again, that plays into the whole kind of sanitized plantation version where people people were just static they're not moving they're they're fixed in their roles they're fixed in their ages they're fixed in their expectations and that that to me was just absolutely fascinating sorry i'm, I'm sort of going off on a tangent because if, if we start to talk about oh we gotta start talking about this though do you remember when we were talking about the middle holzer and we described how he would begin to wax poetic describing the jungle and sound very literary before he went back into commercial mode yeah yeah well, there are just some bits of writing in The Rainmaker's Mistake. She doesn't have to worry about being commercial. She's full-on literary. And there are bits where you're reading it, and you don't even care that you don't know what's happening, because it's just the language is so beautiful. Right, which is where I find myself with Kelly Link all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> no idea what's going on. And, and, you know, but gosh, this is beautiful. Yes, yes. And it's, it's, it's absolutely bizarre. I think that I kind of laugh at myself because for quite a long time I, I railed against the concept of something being literary as opposed to something being a, just a good story. Mm -hmm. And and I guess I'm getting old or something. Because, <laughs> but the language is so beautiful. Plot? What plot? The language <laughs> is so beautiful. <laughs> but this has both. I mean, there is there is yeah. a there is a plot there. Even if you think sometimes you're not quite intelligent enough to grasp it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Although, let's see, I sh we should mention that, honestly, this would be a slightly long novella for science fiction readers. I, that's a good point. Um, both this and Ghosts are, are quite skinny books. Yeah. But don't be All fooled. the more reason that people should go seek them out, because it won't take you that much time. Actually, I started reading this. I was fortunate, frankly... I went on a business trip, and I had started reading it a few nights before. I got for, through those first three chapters or so, yeah. and then between a plane flight and a delay and another plane flight, um, I read the whole book. So I was right. able to, to get it all in a sitting. I think if I had... A lot of times I end up reading in chunks, you know, especially with the baby. I get a, a little bit of reading time here and then a little bit a couple days yeah. later. Mm -hmm. I am so glad I was able to read this all at once. I know what you mean, because you kind of, it, it is a ride, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, and it really helped everything hang together. Whereas mm -hmm. if I were trying to remember something I'd read a week ago, I think it would have been, it would have been more challenging. Yes, and that's, that's a very good point. I think in a way, it's a perfect example of a book that's very, it's very condensed. It's very rich. And you need to be fully present for all of it. There's no skimming. Yeah, no, there's no skimming. There's absolutely nothing wasted. <laughs> and, and let me just say, I'm really glad that I read it on the way to the business trip. Because on the, on the mirror side flight getting back home, which again was a flight and a long delay and then another flight, mm -hmm. I had been reading Love in the Time of Cholera. And I really mm -hmm. loved the book, but I was so brain fried after five <laughs> days of nothing but EMC engineering. <laughs> Uh -huh. yep, that, yep. Uh, yeah, I was just like, eventually I realized I was reading the same paragraph over and over. No. I was like, okay, I need to just go play Plants vs. Zombies on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and eventually, frankly, at the end of that day, because I had a six-hour layover in Chicago, oh, Plants vs. Zombies was too much for me. Oh, man. <laughs> 
<laughs> but at least you have a very firm grasp on what your brain can accomplish. <laughs> yeah, wow. Whew. But, that but much and very little more. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a very good point to raise. I do think that this is a book that you need to be in the right frame of mind for in the sense that you do need some energy for it. Right, and not, yeah, this, this falls into the category of not casual beach reading. So, the word challenging wasn't so terrible to use, was it? <laughs> Again, Although, when, when the problem is challenging implies unpleasant sometimes. Oh, I shouldn't have said that then. No, no, I shouldn't have said that. Right, Plenty right. challenging. <laughs> you know, and, and so even when I say that, for instance, Greg Egan's Clockwork Rocket is challenging, I, I mean it with the full connotation of, and if you don't like math that much, you might find it unpleasant. Ah, <laughs> oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Well, then I need to revise my statement and say <laughs> it is, it will challenge you but you will be rewarded at the end. Right, very rewarding. And there's there's plenty to entertain you and captivate you, even if you feel as if you're not getting the the full structure, even getting the the, the layers, there's still gonna be something in it that you can grasp. In fact, back again to, to Ted Chang's work, where even if you are not understanding his, his particular universe structure, there's something to attract your attention, whether it's the language or the depth of the character or, or something. There's something for you to hold on to and enjoy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's, there's a, a lovely sense through The Rainmaker's Mistake where you have, for one, a, again, literary prose. You have a, a rhythmic dialect. You have these characters. There's a sense of a constantly unfolding mystery. Yes. Oh, absolutely. That's why you kind of have to stick with it continuously exactly it never it never even when things you don't necessarily understand what's going on you understand that progress is being made yes yes and i do i guess the the funny thing for me is that when you approached it you knew it was going to be speculative fiction because i more or less warned you right well and and we've been talking about this is we are just going to discuss caribbean speculative fiction so i knew it wasn't going to be a straight historical knowledge not but narrative. but i'm sure when i started it I, I knew she was a sociologist. I knew she dealt with myth. I knew from her reading that there were definitely fantastical elements because her reading consisted of that first chapter, mm. which which pretty much ends with the tornado carrying away the great house, uh, the tornado that comes out of, of Abdul's laughter. Uh-huh. Like, you knew already that something strange was happening. Yeah. But I didn't know if it was going to be... <sighs> As I said, pure myth rather than fantasy. I did not expect science fiction at all. And I was going on into it, plodding away, thinking, okay, this is going to be some historical, sociological sociological stuff. And then I think the point at which I began to change my, my thought process was when they discovered that they were immortal, or at least aging very slowly, and, and Sally Water was, was discovered to be old. And then there was something in me that just sort of went, <laughs> what's going on here? And and it was it was quite a discovery for me. It was fantastic. Well, and I have to say that I mean, speculative fiction can can describe a multitude of sins, can't it? I mean, speculative does not mean science fiction. It doesn't. No. And so I, it's like when I what I said when when I read that first chapter and it set off all my wow. Creepy cult, you know, creepy brainwash cult. 
Yeah, uh-huh. that's to me that was my science fictional reading, and so I kind of tamped that down. I was like, no, no, this isn't <laughs> this isn't science fiction. This is speculative fiction. This might this might all just be magical, uh-huh. and and I was prepared for a more magical and mythical thing. And when it brought it back to science fiction at the end, I was like, oh yeah, no wait, it was a creepy brainwash cult, huh? <laughs> and I I wish I wish in a way that I I could have had both experiences the that would, appro- yeah. Yeah. It's fictional as well as approaching it like historical mythic, because um, I know I would have, I would have, I would have been in a completely different headspace by the middle of that book. I really yeah, have would've. you ever heard somebody somebody say, "I envy you the experience of reading this for the first time"? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there are things that you can't you can't reread with that same sense of innocence. Precisely. And, Although, uh, ha- yeah. Having said that, having said that, it does make me think to myself that. There, there are three ways that I would sit down and read this again from cover to cover. Mm-hmm. One way is to sit down and read it as a science fiction novel. Mm-hmm. One way is to sit down and read it as a purely sociological exercise mm-hmm. where she's clearly taking certain realities from history and from present culture and, and, and giving you little, little mini stories about, about them within the book. And then the, the full-on kind of mythic slash slipstream thing where there are, are layers of underlying truth that that delve into both individual and collective psyche. It's, yes, it's a very, it's a slender book, but the amount of times you'll be reading it, you'll feel as if you got a doorstopper's worth. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No question there. Well, we should probably leave the discussion there, mm-hmm. talking for a little more than an hour. So let's see. So next week, our plan is to circle back and pick up the rest of the Greg Egan short stories. That's correct. I will okay. still be making references to Ted Chiang because I cannot help myself. Well, yeah, now that you've read Ted Chiang, I mean, he, again, he just becomes quickly such a touchstone. Very much so. But I, I'm looking forward as well to when we pick up The Sparrow. Because I have a feeling that I will again be making references both to Egan and to Chang when we start discussing that. Simply again in view of uh, hard science versus soft science mm-hmm. and how it's portrayed in in, um, in futuristic type sci-fi stories. And I am still waiting for my copy of Ghosts. I oh. got two books in the mail today and one mm-hmm. of them had, had all sorts of foreign postage and I was like, yes, I got it! What the heck is this? And it turned out it was from a uh, BSFA mailing. So, I was do you know? So, what I was like, oh, darn it! I've never been less happy to get a book from England. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm going to tell you, we're going to have to put a little cutoff point by which, if you haven't got it, you have to let me know, and then I'm going to send you my copy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we get to if we get to a certain point, that's going to have to be the answer. Yes, because, because we're not skipping ghosts. Let me no, tell you. no, you've, 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 it's going to be brilliant because, like I said, there is a sort of a, a little kind of progression, Middleholzer, Broderbur, ghosts, mm-hmm. um, Forbes, and 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 I am just waiting to sort of like pull it together. I cannot think of replacing that book with anything else. Okay, excellent. Yeah, and I know at this point Amazon knows that it doesn't have any copies anywhere in its warehouse, and I ordered it from from People Press uh, or People Tree press and i haven't got it yet I'm like oh so wait a minute amazon is already out well no amazon said basically feel it seems like it's been delayed 
<gasps> yeah, because they basically, I had pre-ordered it, and they sent me an email saying, we're not going to be able to ship at the time we thought it we would. Do you still want to continue with the pre-order, or do you want to cancel it? Did you order it from Amazon.com or Amazon.co.uk? Almost certainly .com. Ah, okay. So I have no idea what the different publishing schedules mean for that context. Oh, it's not different publishing schedules. It's more a question of shipping from England because the People Tree Press is based in England. Okay. So um, that's why. Anyway, like I said, our plan B is I send you my copy, so that'll make it very simple. Right, right. Yeah, so we'll see what happens in the next couple weeks here. Cool. Well, on that note, we shall... Thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you, and uh, thank our listeners for sticking with us. Yes.